welcome to the world of critical care. Today's episode is on taking hearts in the ICU. Now, this typically refers to the settling process and care of a patient out of the cardiovascular OR that requires ICU-level care. These are typically patients such as coronary artery bypass procedures, valve replacements, repairs. We might do a VSD repair. We could be looking at something like a cryoablation. We could have a situation where we're doing an aortic graft. We have an abdominal aortic aneurysm. Typically, these are your types of patients that do require ICU-level care out of the OR. Often, these patients may spend one to three to four days in an ICU or more, depending on how much support their heart needs coming out of the OR. Now, in my facility I work at, we have an option to do a heart-specific shift. So it's a 10 to 10 shift, and all you do will take one to two hearts out of the OR. And it's my favorite shift. It's something I've really enjoyed over the past several years. And it's a shift that I also train nurses in regularly. And just this being the time of year where a lot of nurses are in that intensive training phase, I thought I would put a resource out there to talk about kind of my mental mindset in preparing to take a heart looking at the intra-op charting, kind of the clues it gives me about my patient, and then post-operatively the process of settling the patient and progressing them to extubation, which is our ultimate goal. I think this kind of shift requires a bit of a mental switch. It's different than a typical ICU shift. There are just so many considerations to have that I think it's worthwhile to lay this thought process out there. And hopefully if you're either in a cardiovascular ICU or you're just in a general ICU that takes hearts that I hope this episode is beneficial. Now to begin, when I first walk in for a heart shift or I'm told I'm taking this patient out of the OR, a few things I want to do first. Number one, I want to know as much about my patient as I can. So for me, I want to know their health history. I want to know if we've had a pre-op echo, if we've had a cath report, if we have any kind of data that specifically talks to me about their pre-op heart function. So that means if we have valvular abnormalities, I want to know about that. If we have rhythm abnormalities, for example, their chronic AFib on Eliquis at home. Okay, I, I want to know that. Do they have a reduced EF? How reduced is it? Do they have RV dysfunction? Okay, I want to know these things because for me it's important to know what was my baseline pre-op and where are we at post-operatively and are any of these concerns post-operatively new or was this something we had pre-op? And so for me these are things I'm thinking about. I like to know their full health history and write it on a piece of paper too just to aid report when I end up handing my patient off. Another thing I want to know about is baseline. What is my patient's baseline? This is really important for post-op patients. One, neurostatus. We might have patients who've had CVAs in the past, and sometimes the reporting's inconsistent. Sometimes it's, oh, some right, right hand weakness or fine motor right hand, or sometimes it's much more significant. Well, these things are important because our neuro exams post-operatively are very critical when we look at the post-operative patient. 
And so for me, as I go through any kind of uploaded files, often our cardiothoracic surgery team at our facility uploads a great data sheet going through the patient's history and kind of what led to the current surgical admission. The other thing I want to know, too, is if the patient is inpatient. So it's not that they're an outpatient for this day, but if they've been in the hospital, what led to their course leading into the hospital stay, often this is a bit more of an acute situation. And so I want to be able to look through that to gain as much information as I can about my patient. To me, this often takes about 10 minutes once you get good at it, but I think it's incredibly valuable because it helps you really understand what we may or may not be dealing with. The next thing I think about personally is I like to look at labs if they have a pre-op set of labs. Little things I like to see, things like what were th- what was their potassium? What was their sodium? Okay, do we know that they've had an elevated creatinine or not? How are they managing their electrolytes? Are they anemic or not? Do they have a history of anemia? I like to look at small, just small little things like that can be really valuable to see postoperatively if we've had any dramatic changes. I like to also see pre-op what their vitals were. For me, what what did they walk in? What was their blood pressure when they walked in? Were they hypertensive? Were they significantly hypertensive? What was their baseline heart rate? What was that rhythm when they walked in? Those are important things because, again, we're just establishing our patient baseline, which helps helps us really understand our patient better postoperatively. When we start to progress to getting the patient in the OR, At our facility, we use EPIC charting. We're actually able to see the anesthesia charting in the OR. And so for me, I like to look at the anesthesia charting because it tells me a lot about my patient. Specifically, I can see during induction. So this is the time when they bring the patient into the OR. They're going ahead and and they're usually going to use a pain medicine. They're going to use a sedative, typically a paralytic. They're going to go ahead and place the ET tube, get the patient on the ventilator, put the appropriate lines in the patient that's needed. During this process, you learn a lot about your patient. You see hemodynamically how they respond. You you can see things like what level of sedation is really needed for this patient. Some patients require significant amounts of pain medication during this process, which again, kind of helps start giving you little clues about your patient. If you see a pretty precipitous drop in blood pressure, they end up on vasopressors very quickly just from induction. Again, you start to get some hints about your patient and how they're responding hemodynamically. As they progress the patient, they've prepared them, whether they do a thoracotomy approach or they're doing doing a sternotomy. Again, you start to see how your patient does. You'll see signs for bleeding or not. But again, you're really looking at your hemodynamics and how is your patient responding. If they're going to do cardiopulmonary bypass, you learn a lot too, is because as they initiate cardiopulmonary bypass, typically, one, you see the narrowing of the systole and diastole. You're also typically going to see cardioplegia, so your heart rate goes zero, so you sort of get an idea when they've gone on cardiopulmonary bypass. Now, this is a key moment because you really tend to see evidence of vasoplegia at this phase. If you start to see significant vasopressors being added or current vasopressors elevating, it starts to give you a little hint, oh, 
we might be having some vasoplegia. So that, again, those baroreceptors, those receptors in our vessels are just not quite responding like normal. So we are having to add our own exogenous vasopressor to help compensate the blood pressure. And this can be directly an effect from cardiopulmonary bypass. As we start to look at this and they're on bypass, I'm always looking for signs of bleeding. So are they giving blood products or not? You're looking for signs of abnormal coagulopathy. Obviously, if they're on cardiopulmonary bypass, we're going to be heparinized. But we're always looking for signs where something maybe they're having some struggles with that. And you just kind of keep it in your mind. Typically, when the procedure moves towards the end and we're weaning off bypass, so the surgical procedure's been done, this is really a moment of truth, typically. You learn a lot about your patient at this moment. And so as they wean off bypass, you're going to see, one, how does the heart function? Typically, in these procedures, they'll have a TEE probe in, so they're going to do a transesophageal echocardiogram looking at the heart, seeing the heart function, looking at the valves, looking at the ventricles. If the heart is struggling after procedures, which is not uncommon, again, just because of the actual inflammation of the, of the procedure, and sometimes you get some swelling in different places, and, and, and because of these things, sometimes there's parts of the heart that we don't quite have the normal squeezing that we normally would, or maybe there's a little valvular dysfunction. And so because of that, you might see inotropes added, etc. And as they optimize the heart, they can see it with that TEE probe. They prepare then to fully come off bypass. Now, again, this is that moment where you kind of learn about your patient. If they come off bypass, boom, vasopressors are off, no inotropes. You know you're doing well. You've had no blood products. Great. In many ways, you know you're, you're most likely going to be receiving a patient that we should be able to check boxes pretty quickly and move to extubation. But when you see the patient come off bypass and the vasopressors go up, you see an inotrope added, you right away know, okay, our heart function is not quite like normal. If you see a second inotrope added, maybe you see something like a balloon pump added, we again are thinking, okay, our heart is struggling more and our mindset really shifts. Again, the other thing to think about, too, is we might come off bypass, minimal vasopressors, no inotrope, but you see they're giving multiple blood products back in the OR, and you say, okay, we might have bleeding coagulopathy, and so it starts to tune us in to what we might be receiving. Now, the reason I think it's valuable to look at this anesthesia view, if your facility has this option is it sets you up for success in terms of how you prepare your room. If I see signs of bleeding, I'm going to go ahead and get blood tubing, saline, ready to go so I can give blood products. If there's significant bleeding, you start to think ahead about priming a mass transfuser if you think you're headed that way. If you see signs that your patient's on a lot of vasopressor and inotropic support, you can go ahead and start thinking, okay, we're probably going to need to do some fluid resuscitation, maybe some blood products to try to optimize our patient. And those things can be pulled and be in the room ahead of time. And these are just things that mentally you can get done ahead of time to reduce stress before your patient comes out to the room. Now, there's a few things that I always think about in the initial phase right before my patient comes out. One, I've looked at the anesthesia view. I know in general where my patient 
is at in terms of how they've done in the case back in the OR. There's a few things that for me I want to have in my room always ready to go. Number one, you want to coordinate with your respiratory therapist that your ventilator is already set up with the correct vent settings in the room so that the vent can be connected and we can click start. Number two, I like to have at least two sources of suction. So for one, it's for my chest tube. My second source of suction is going to be for the ET tube and or with a Yankauer. Sometimes you like to have three, but at a minimum, we want to have those two suction sources. I also want to have that Yankauer available just in case we had some sort of unexpected vomiting or we had a situation where we needed to do some quick suctioning of our patient. It is something that always, always, always needs to be available in our rooms and ready to go. The next thing I like to think about in my room is making sure I have all the appropriate cables. Cables just for some reason travel in the ICU. So making sure that I have the, for me in particular, I start thinking about SpO2 cable, heart rate cable. Do I have a blood pressure cable? Just in case I need to run a cuff pressure. Do I have a cuff? Do I have my art line pressure cable? Do I have my cables for CVP and pulmonary artery pressure? If I have a PA cath, okay. Do I have the manifold that those little pressure transducers fit on for my art line CVP PA? Again, it's little things like that, but often if you don't have one, it holds the whole process up when the patient comes out of the OR. If you do thermodilution for cardiac output index or you use a different type of system to get those numbers, do you have the cables you need? Is it set up and ready to go? For us, like at our facility, we have to put in the patient's weight and height to calculate body surface area to be able to then calculate out our numbers for thermodilution. So again, I've looked up those numbers. I have them written down on a piece of paper ahead of time. Additionally, for me in my rooms, I always like to have, almost irregardless of what's going on, I like to have set out ahead of time one of our IV extensions. So we've actually got an extension that we can put on our central lines that have seven extra ports ready to go. I have those ready. Typically I'll have it primed with saline and often I'll have a liter of LR and 500 mils of 5% albumin sitting in all of my patients' rooms. Those can always be returned later, but often fluid resuscitation is something we think about early on. Most of my patients are cold coming out of the OR. Often I'll go ahead and ahead of time have a bear hugger in the room with the bear hugger associated little, little cover that we use to inflate over our patient. I often have those just sitting in the room. Again, it's one less thing to worry about. And you know what? If I don't need it, I just take it back. No big deal. Thinking ahead, I think, really can help reduce stress in that initial phase of receiving a patient out of the OR. Now, we've talked about now pre-op, inter-op. We've talked about preparing our room. Of the last couple things right before the patient comes in that I like to make sure, if I'm receiving a very sick patient, they're on mechanical support for their heart, they're on significant amount of IV medications, I've typically alerted our tech to, hey, we're probably going to be drawing some labs or they're significantly bleeding. We know we're going to draw labs. I let my tech know that right away. We're probably going to draw labs early. 
I like to too grab one or two other nurses in the room just to let them know, hey, we've got a patient coming in. They're a little sicker. Can I just get some help? As an experienced nurse too, it's important in that phase to delegate. It's your room and your patient, and you're really the overseer of that care in terms of making sure that you know what needs to be done and that people have a job. So often you can have a patient come in a room out of the OR and there's a lot that needs to be done and you've got helpful hands, but it might be some new people or a float who's come into your ICU and isn't quite sure on the process. So just having in mind a few tasks that are easy to delegate is great and something you can talk to people before when they come out. For me, one of my favorite things to delegate is to have someone hook up my chest tube, mark it, write it on the board, empty my Foley out, tell me how much it is, and have someone look at all of my drips, make sure none of them are empty. If any of them are close to being empty, grab another bag, plug my pumps in, and label my IV lines. That's like one of my favorite things to delegate because it's easy, anyone can do it. Also, of course, to hooking up the art line, PA cast, CVP is another great task to delegate early on as you're settling your patient. Now we've moved to the phase now where our patient is coming into the room. Admittedly, different hospitals might have different procedures and protocols. So again, I'm talking about what I do at our facility and a system that works for me personally. I have found that this is a system that a lot of people who train me have talked about. And as I've done this year after year, I've realized just how valuable this system is to follow. And it helps in even the most chaotic moments bring structure to the chaos. And I think that's one of the most valuable things in hearts is because hearts can be very stressful because a lot is going on. There can be a lot of people in the room at once. And it is very easy to feel overwhelmed. And I think structure helps reduce that stress and slow your mind down. Now, when a patient comes out to the room, they typically come out in our facility. They're usually escorted by one to two OR staff and anesthesia. If they're on a perfusion device like an Impella, balloon pump, ECMO, a perfusionist will, will come out with the patient as well. As we wheel the patient into the room, my number one priority is hemodynamics. ASAP, the first thing I want to do is when that bed gets locked, either I personally hook up tele, I want to know the patient's rhythm, and I want to know the patient's blood pressure. That is the absolute first thing I do. For me, I either do it personally or I have a nurse do it. I want to know the rhythm and I want to know the blood pressure. Assuming I check those two boxes, I have a stable rhythm and I have a stable blood pressure, I proceed. Otherwise, I stop and we deal with the situation at hand. After I know rhythm, after I know blood pressure, the next thing I look for is bleeding. Instantly, you can usually tell if you have a critical situation of bleeding where you need to stop and deal with this now. For me, you're going to look at the chest tube. If that tube coming out of the patient into the atrium is totally full of blood, I'm a little concerned. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tip the blood into the atrium out of the tube. I'm going to hook suction up to the atrium. Typically, patients are going to come out on negative 20 for suction on, on pretty much all cases postoperatively. 
and I'm going to look at the tube for a second and see how quickly it fills up with blood. If the tube very rapidly fills up with bright red blood, again, this is a big red flag. We stop what we're doing. You ask anesthesia, hey, have you been having issues with bleeding? Are we coagulopathic? Do we have coags, a tag, et cetera, scent or not? This is, again, a red flag. We stop what we're doing and we address it right away. Now, let's say we've checked our box. We're not acutely bleeding, stable rhythm, stable blood pressure. The next thing I mentally do is I like to look at my pumps. Again, you run into situations where this happens, so you kind of learn why you start to have these, these processes you follow. I look at my pumps and I say, what are my drips at? And are any of them about to run dry? And I say that because it just, anesthesia gets busy sometimes and they bring out patients and you're on a truckload of norepi and you look and your norepi bag's got like four mils left in it. And you really don't want that one running dry. Or they're on vaso and the vaso bag's almost empty or whatever it might be. Again, I've pretty much seen all these happen before. And so that's why I like to check my drips. What are they at? Sometimes too, the charting in the back in, in anesthesia in the OR, maybe it hasn't quite updated what their drips are at. So you thought they were on, you know, 0.03 mics a kilo minute of norepi and 0.04 of azo, but they come out and they're on 0.22 of norepi and they're on 0.08 of azo. And you're going, whoa, like what happened here, guys? You know, <laughs> and, but again, double check your drips, the bags, if any of them are going to run dry again, that's a hard stop. We say, hey, can someone please go get a new bag, order a new bag from pharmacy. If it's a medication you don't stock on the unit, you delegate someone to go, hey, I need you to go get the farm of the unit pharmacist. We need a medication now. If your drips are really high and it's not expected, that's a time where you stop and you ask anesthesia, hey, how long have we been on this dose? Or you see an inotrope that's on a really high dose. You ask, hey, uh, just real quick, it's a pretty, pretty atypical dose, didn't see it charted in back. You know, what led to us being on this dose? Again, that's one of the processes we're going to follow. So now to, re to, to rehash, rhythm stable, blood pressure stable on art line. Art line's been hooked up to the monitor. Bleeding is stable. We've looked at our pumps. Our pumps, everything makes sense, or at least we've asked why the drips are at what they're at. We've confirmed that none of our drips are imminently going to run dry. At this point, at our facility, we get reports. So the bedside nurse and the advanced practice provider will be in the room and receive report from anesthesia. At this point, too, I like to just be friendly with your anesthesia staff. You know, introduce yourself. Say, hey, I'm Michael. You know, I'm going to be getting a report today. You know, whenever you're ready, tell me about the case. And it kind of puts the anesthesia at ease, especially if you're at a teaching facility. You might have a new resident giving report. If you tell they're a resident, you could tell they're kind of a resident and they're newer to it. Again, you know, be kind, be nice. You know, don't don't be difficult with them. Um, and these are the kind of those things you'll kind of learn with experience. Now, as you tell them you're ready for report, I like to delegate a few tasks if I have help. So the tasks I'm going to delegate, the most important one to me at this point is if I have a pulmonary artery catheter, I'm going to delegate someone to hook up my PA cath, hook up my CVP. 
I usually like people as well to be able someone to mark that chest tube atrium if I haven't already done it, making sure someone has emptied the urine simply because that helps the anesthesia because they typically will claim the urine in the Foley bag. And if I have extra hands, I'm going to ask someone if they can plug my IV pumps in and label my IV lines because that is one of, to me, one of the easiest ways to reduce stress on a patient is knowing what is what with your IV lines. Assuming these things can be delegated and are done, you get report from anesthesia. Now, again, at my facility, our nurse practitioners, PAs, try to be in the room, but sometimes they get really busy. So my report or the report I'm receiving from anesthesia, I try to think like a nurse practitioner. I try to think like that advanced practice provider. So I want to know things such as what was done in the OR. That's important. Sometimes the plan was five by bypass, but they only did two. Sometimes they went in and they were going to do maybe a repair replace. Well, did they repair the valve, replace the valve? Did they do a maze? Did they do an LAA? So I've had a left atrial appendage ligation before that they went in to do it, but they couldn't fully ligate it. Well, that's important to know. It helps us know what really happened in the OR. I've had cases where they were going to do a sternotomy, but then they actually had to progress to a sternotomy. Maybe they were going to do left leg saphenous vein harvest, but they had to actually switch to the right. Again, these are valuable things to know and understand what was going on in the case. Now, we've established what was done in the OR. The next thing I want to know for me, postoperatively, what did the echo look like? So that transesophageal echocardiogram, how was the heart function? Is there anything new? Is there anything concerning? If we're on an inotrope, what was that specifically for? Like if we're on a little epi, did we see some RV dysfunction, etc.? If we're paced, what was our underlying rhythm? What was the response to pacing? If you're paced at kind of an abnormally high rate, you can ask, okay, why are we being paced at 100? Again, these are questions we can ask, and we want to understand that. If we're on a bloom pump, an impella, etc., that's a discussion to have again with them and perfusion about the settings and why we're on those settings. If there's obvious signs of bleeding, this is again a time to ask what products have been given. Are there any products that have been ordered that we haven't given yet? Have we sent coags? What were they? If we sent coags but have given products since, you need to know what has been given and what has not been given since that coag was sent because that can affect what we do postoperatively now. It's important to know what kind of resuscitation the patient has had too in terms of volume. So did they get cell saver? How much? Have they had crystalloid? How much? Have they had albumin? Okay, tell us about the albumin that we've been given. If we're looking at a situation, too, where maybe um, they've done just at coming out of the back, like they're kind of on the trip out of the OR and they have to, they had to give a little epi, little bit of epi, or maybe they gave a little push of phenol, et cetera. Understanding the hemodynamics in that last bit of the case can be really important. If you have vasopressors at a high level, ask why, what's been the vasopressor trend over the last little bit coming out of the OR. These are really important things to know. Another thing, too, at this point I like to do is look at my patient and make sure, because typically at this point the CVP has been hooked up, 
The PA cath has been hooked up. I'm kind of at a point now where I can look at the patient while anesthesia is still here and make sure nothing is out of order or out of the ordinary that jumps out at me and says, ooh, I need to ask them about this. If they have a pulmonary artery catheter, I look at the number. You know, if it's somewhere in the 45 to 55 range, I'm, I'm pretty happy. If the PA cath is like 36, I'm going to, and I look at the PA waveform and I go, ooh, that really looks like it's in the RV. While anesthesia is there, I might be like, does someone want to refloat this or pull it out for me? You know, you want to ask questions or it's 36 and you have a PA waveform and you just confirm, hey, it looks like a PA waveform, but that's a pretty shallow PA cath. Are you sure about that? Again, or it's very deep. Your PA cath is at 60. You look like you have a great PA waveform, but just asking, you know, what is your pulmonary artery catheter measuring at? Another thing I like to do is if I have pacing wires, which most of our patients do, I like to just confirm, is it an A wire? Is it a V wire? Again, normally V wires on the left, A wires on the right, but not always. So ask, do you know, what are the wires? And that's incredibly important and something that anesthesia needs to know postoperatively. The next thing I look at are my chest tubes. I make sure, one, there's no saturation around the chest tubes, which could be a bit abnormal. And if so, I'd ask, is this new? If I had significant bleeding, I'm going to ask him, hey, have we been oozing or not? Something, again, important to know from anesthesia. I then look at the rest of my patient, making sure nothing really stands out as abnormal. And at that point, I'm okay with moving on from report from anesthesia. Anesthesia usually gets a set of vitals, gets a temperature. So again, if you're able to hook up like a bladder temp probe or hook up like a central temp on a PA catheter, it's great, great way to help out anesthesia so they can get a full set of vitals and then leave the room. Now, again, this may be facility dependent, but I'll throw this out there for our facility we have all of our post-op orders, and so these orders have to be released. Now, that report from anesthesia can take anywhere from two to five, six minutes. This whole report, I'm not isolated. I'm always looking at my patient. I'm looking at the chest tubes. I'm taking peaks at the blood pressure. I'm making sure they're stable. It's not like I've not paid attention to my patient. And that's going to be a skill that's going to take time and hearts. But remember, you must be focused on your patient. Hemodynamic changes can happen dramatically postoperatively. And so it's critical to always keep your patient vitals in mind every minute or so. Now, once I've gotten that report, I'm going to release my orders. As I'm releasing my orders, that's important at our facility because that releases an order for a stat chest x-ray. So as soon as I start that order, boom, x-ray starts coming. The other thing that's really valuable for us at our facility is that that also releases all of our orders to pharmacy so pharmacy can start approving the medications so that I can officially get them scanned in on our charting system. The other thing, too, that our orders do, they release things like to the techs, any labs, or to do like a 12-lead EKG, which we're going to do post-operatively post as well. Now, for me and my process, I've released my orders. I am a big fan on charting as I go because charting as I go is something, it takes work and it takes intentionality. The more I do hearts, the more of a fan I am of charting as I go. 
And I think it can be easy, especially as you gain experience, to get a little lazy with hearts because you get really good at it. And you kind of think, oh, I'll just keep all these numbers in my head. You never know when that patient takes a turn, sometimes unfortunately in the wrong direction. And you can very quickly end up where you go nonstop for two hours and you forgot all that stuff that you were just keeping in your head to chart. And so my biggest tip to people starting in hearts is open your chart up. And for me, I will associate my devices there in the room. And then I open up an I and O column for that moment that came in the room. And that's my home, my home base. That chart stays open for me for the first couple hours continuously in the room. I find it to be my number one suggestion to people. I've had a lot of nurses that I've trained on this. They kind of push back against it, especially some of the more experienced nurses. But I'm telling you, most have come back to me later on and said, oh, yeah, I probably should have charted as I went. And to me, at a minimum, even if you're crazy busy, at least have a blank sheet of paper in the room where you can write your interventions, INOs, and put a timestamp on them because hearts can get very busy. So I open up that column. I put a timestamp column, boom, for that time where they entered the room. And I put that chest tube atrium total in there right away. And I do a quick chart. Here's my atrium, negative 20, no air leak. And then I put both of my chest tubes, or if I have three chest tubes, I quickly chart on are they draining or not on each tube? What does it look like? Is it bright red, serosanguinous, dark red, etc.? I quickly chart that. The reason I chart it is because it forces me to think about my three tubes and making sure, or two tubes, and making sure that I do have drainage out of each tube. If I have neither one's draining at all, it's a bit of a red flag, and I say, okay, do we have some sort of issue we're removing into a tamponade, or are they clotted in such a way where this could be concerning? I do that. The next thing I do personally is I move to a vitals column and I save a set of vitals. And the reason I do that is because this now starts me in my cycle. At our facility, we do Q15 minute chest tube INOs for the first two hours. The 15 minute cycle is sort of the cycle I'm going to continue though for the first two hours in terms of how I look at my patient. And the reason I keep up the INO column on my charting system is because it reminds me I'm going to do 15 minutes of work on my patient. Then I'm going to take a pause, look at my INOs, chart them, go back. I have now 15 minutes more work to do and I come back. But charting as I go is sort of a way to keep me in this 15 minute cycle with my patient. Now, orders released. We've charted that initial boom chest tube output. That helps us hone in on bleeding and or tamponade, which are two concerns we have. We now, what we want to do is do a survey of the situation and make sure we have no new red flags. So we go, okay, chest tubes, I don't see signs of tamponade. I don't see signs of bleeding. For me, what I like to do is I like to go head to toe and do about a five-minute mental assessment of my patient. When I go head to toe, I actually start with my pumps because we put our pumps at the head of the bed. I again look at my bags and I say, okay, are any of my bags obviously dry? No. Okay. What are my drips at? 
reconfirm mentally what all of my drips are at. I then, when I look at my drips, look at my vitals again. I'm looking at my BP, heart rate. I'm going to look at things like heart rate rhythm. I'm going to look at things like my CVP now, my PA cath. Look at those numbers, and I want to know my temperature. Some of our biggest postoperative complications for us are hemodynamics, temperature. These are two things that we really want to think about and hone in on when we are working for our first really 30 minutes with our patient. As I do that initial head-to-toe, I've looked at my drips, I've looked at my, my vitals. As long as they're stable, I'm going to come back to them, but I want to finish out this initial quick head-to-toe. I'm going to look at my lines, making sure they look like they're in place. I'm looking at my PA cath, making sure my PA catheter is locked so it can't easily come undone. I check my, my marking on it. I check the pressure bag for the PA cath. I make sure it's the appropriate height, three feet above the transducer. I make sure the transducer's level. I make sure I like to flush all of my lines. I make sure the pressure bag is at the correct pressure. I'm going to then go to my patient and check pupils. Even if they're still paralyzed, we should have pupillary response to light. It may be a bit sluggish because of the sedation, but again, I'm checking my pupils. I'm making sure I don't see obvious signs of some sort of CVA that happened in the OR. I like to suction my ET tube. One, making sure I have a cough response, especially if they're no longer paralyzed. And that's, again, something to ask anesthesia, making sure they have reversed the paralytic. I like to suction. I like to look at my ET tube. I like to know the marking. I follow my vent tubing to the ventilator, and I confirm our vent settings that nothing is significantly out of line. So for me, that includes things like I have a PEEP of 14. Okay, that's not normal across the board postoperatively. Why is my PEEP so high? If I have a PEEP of 10, I'm saying, okay, a little bit more normal if we're bleeding, or is this some sort of issue like we have a transfusion associated circulatory overload, we're having some issues oxygenating, why is that? I like to look at the rate too. If our rate's really high, it kind of cues me in. Did RT see something? Like, is their CO2 a little too high? Like, what are we seeing there with the rate being elevated? Again, volumes. I like to look at their tidal volumes to make sure it's appropriate for the size of our patient and to make sure they are getting the volumes that they need to be receiving so that there's not some sort of blockage in the tube. I've had situations where anesthesia reverses and the patient wakes up a little bit too much and they bite the tube. So again, that gives me a sign, hey, maybe we need to resedate the patient a little bit extra, get a bite block on there, and then proceed. These are things we want to think about. As I do this, I've looked at, we've done pupils, ET tube, ventilator. I like to move down now at this point to the chest of the patient. I want to make sure I've got bilateral breath sounds and I don't hear really obvious signs of significant pulmonary edema, which can happen sometimes, especially with a lot of blood products. These are my, what I call red flag checks. Heart sounds. What's my baseline? A lot of people have a friction rub postoperatively, sometimes some diminished heart sounds, especially if they're larger or you just have more blood around the heart. I should hear heart sounds. If I hear absolutely no heart sounds, it's not an absolute red flag, but it's definitely a yellow flag, and it's something I'm keeping in mind. If we had a valve replacement and I hear a significant murmur, 
or we've had a, a pretty complex procedure and I hear a new murmur, again, it's something I'm thinking about and it's a yellow flag and something to address as we move on. Again, I move to my chest tubes, making sure all the tubes are draining. If one tube is not draining, many times I pull the dressing off to inspect the tube, making sure there's not some significant clotting in the tube. If there is, it's something you let the providers know. Sometimes they're fine with it. Sometimes it's a bit more of a concern, especially if you see no draining, absent heart sounds, and what we get to in a minute, potentially reduced cardiac output. After this, I like to look at the abdomen of my patient, making sure there's not some obvious deformity, etc. Again, typically I do this just with a rub across the stomach. Main thing I'm feeling for is some sort of abnormal distension. I look at the growings, making sure there's no growing access. Sometimes for bypass, they are growing cannulated. Again, making sure those sites look good. I move down to my patient if they have saphenous vein harvest. I like to look at those sites and make sure I don't see any abnormal bleeding. I am a big fan of checking cap refill on the knees. Sometimes patients are a little bit cool, and so you're going to always have slightly sluggish cap refill, a little more pale skin, or if they're on high vasopressor, that can be uh, atypical, not, not abnormal. But again, it's something to keep in mind. I like to look, see if I see any knee modeling or if I have any modeling on the lower extremities. For me, I want to get pulses. A big one for me is pulse baseline. My goal is, is, is looking mostly at Either if I can get post-tibs or I can get pedals, either one, but I want to get a pulse. If I can't get a pulse, I'm going to get a Doppler, and it's something I'm going to address very quickly. Same thing for radials. I want to get my radials, if not owners, and again, if I can't get them, I want to Doppler them, and I want to quickly find this out because if we are having issues with pulses, is something you need to let the providers know, especially if we have a situation where we've had a situation like we had a radial artery harvest, so we're looking at ulnars and we don't have an ulnar, or we had a situation where maybe we were growing cannulated for bypass and in that, in that same leg we're having really diminished pulses, all things we want to think about. And again, it's all about establishing that baseline. That head-to-toe can be done very quickly. It can be done in two minutes when you get really good at it. Once I've done that, that head-to-toe, I like to go focus on my monitor. When I'm focused on the monitor, what I'm looking at is now, do I have any new red flags? And let's start collect collecting data. Because we need to collect data to figure out if we have any issues. We need to correct them, and then we're going to move to our goal, which is getting the patient off the ventilator. As we collect data, we look back at the rhythm. Is our rhythm stable? Great. Is our blood pressure stable? Okay, let's think about blood pressure for a minute. There's going to be slight variations from procedure to procedure and surgeon to surgeon. In general, we want a systolic under 140. Typically, we have kind of a hard limit of 160 systolic at our facility. If we're trending slightly near the 140 and we're on vasopressor, I like to run my, pre my, my pressors right at goal. So for me, if I have a 65 MAP goal, I try to keep that MAP right at 65. I don't even mind it being 63, 64. What I don't want as a patient that is on the more hypertensive end of a normotensive spectrum. 
Increased pressure increases our bleeding risk. If we have a significantly bleeding patient, often we might actually allow for some permissive hypotension. Again, focus on your hemodynamics. You do not want to be pressing a patient if you don't need to be. We don't want to create a situation where we're putting undue stress on the heart. And as we collect our data, specifically our cardiac output and index, we don't want to be collecting that data if we're hypertensive because that puts extra strain on our heart and can reduce our output. So again, we want to get our hemodynamics dialed in. So the goal here is to have us around that 65 MAP goal. There are situations where a surgeon might request possibly a systolic goal, say greater than 100, greater than 90. And there are situations where they might ask for a systolic under 120. I've seen that specifically with some aortic dissections, in particular with the graphs afterwards. They've asked for a, an abnormally lower systolic goal, sometimes pretty aggressive in terms of holding a tight parameter. Now, we've looked at the blood pressure. The next thing I like to look at is gathering my data. So one, I like to look at my heart function, and I like to look at heart function in relation to the pump versus the fluid. For us, we at our facility do thermodilution to get a cardiac output and an index. And the index, of course, is just our output in liters per minute divided by our body's surface area. The goal is 2.0 index or greater. At our facility, if it's under 2.0, we want to bring it above 2.0. Now, if we have a reduced cardiac index, what that tells us is often we have one of a few situations at play. Number one, we have an issue with the actual pump being the heart. In this situation, we need to fix our pump. We could also have a fluid issue. Now, our fluid issue often could be signs of hypovolemia, which is very common postoperatively, or it could be a sign of increased hemorrhage. Another issue we could have is a situation where we have significant afterload. So the pump is pushing against too much pressure, causing the pump to have difficulty. That's why having our PA pressure, our CVP, having our arterial pressure helps tell us what is going on in our current situation. So let's say I've done my thermodilution and I have an index that's below 2.0. The first thing I ask myself is this, was my blood pressure at goal? Was I significantly hypotensive? Okay, that might explain some things. Was I hypertensive? Again, hypertension increases afterload, which can decrease my output. Okay, maybe I need to bring the patient's pressure down, whether I need to treat it or reduce my vasopressors, and get another index and see how it improves. Number two, the second thing I always ask myself, am I hypothermic? Hypothermia is a significant issue postoperatively. It increases afterload. It can actually affect the heart and specifically our cardiomyocytes and can reduce our output and it also will worsen coagulopathies. Remember, our enzymatic reactions are temperature sensitive. If we have bleeding and we're hypothermic, 
that creates a vicious cycle. If I'm hypothermic, significantly hypothermic, often I know right away I need to get a bear hugger on my patient ASAP, and often just bringing the patient back up to temperature can lead to an improvement in cardiac output, especially, too, if some of your other concerns we have, which we're going to talk about in a second, aren't present. Hypothermia often is a significant variable that if we address it, it improves our actual cardiac output. My line for a bear hugger postoperatively is typically about 35.5 to 36 degrees. If, I, if I'm under 36, I typically just put a bear hugger on my patient. I found a lot of patients when they come out, they might come out at like 36.0, but then about an hour later, Almost without fail, they typically their pressure drops a little bit or their their temperature drops a little bit over time. And so for me, I, I really recommend getting that bear hugger on the patient. Now let's say we've we've ruled out temperature or we're hypothermic. We say, okay, it's a concern. We put a bear hugger on, but we now start considering fluid status. There are certain signs we see where we might say, you know what, we just don't have enough fluid in the system. And the heart, again, remember heart contractility is a lot like a balloon. It pushes out what we fill it with. If we see signs of hypovolemia, we need to treat this. The first thing I look at is my CVP. I think CVP, one of the most important things about it is trends. I know I wouldn't be a slave to the number where you say, oh, the CVP is a seven definitely means we need to give fluid. We're a little low. Again, every the, the norm for people can vary. But if you come out of the OR and you're, you're on vasopressors, you're pressing, your, your cardiac output is low, and your CVP's a 5 or a 6, that might give you an indication, yeah, we might need a little fluid. And another tip, another thing to look at is RPA diastolic pressure, our filling pressure to the left side of the heart. If we have a decreased filling pressure, a decreased CVP, both of those together could tell us mm, we might be a little bit volume down, and that's something where we might need to do some fluid resuscitation. Fluid resuscitation can really depend upon provider preferences, often lactated ringers or Albumin are the two choices. Often, too, if you're a little bit metabolic, meaning you've got a little bit of metabolic acidosis, which is not uncommon postoperatively, we might need to boost the bicarb a little bit. So something like a little LR bolus can help with that as that increases our bicarbonate. And so, again, things to think about. We have some providers at our facility that right away will just go to LR usually 500 initially, see what the response is, maybe another 500. If we're still needing fluids, we might then move to some albumin, which is quite normal. Remember, with crystalloids, you give a liter, 250 ends up intravascular, 750 extravascular. But of course, for our blood pressure, we need to restore intravascular and extravascular levels because both of those are critical but we also need to make sure our, our the oncotic pressure right is correct. And so sometimes we need to add that albumin to add that protein in. And these are things we think about, but often fluid resuscitation is the first step in correcting a low index before we move to inotropes. 
So if we can rule out temperature, we can rule out bleeding, we can rule out hypovolemia with fluid resuscitation. Our CVP has improved. Our PA diastolic has improved. We're not hypertensive, so we don't have too much afterload. This is where we start to say, okay, our index is still low. We're going to progress to an inotrope. The choice of inotrope can vary. Sometimes they might use a medication like milrinone. We get a little bit of the inotropic effect plus some vasodilation. So because of that, that may help with our afterload and our output. We might want a little help with our intrinsic rate and some output. So we might look at dobutamine. Often when we initiate an inotrope, we're going to recheck an index again, sometimes 30 minutes to an hour later, to again see the effect from that. If we have our temperature to a normothermic state, we are not bleeding, and I'm going to talk about bleeding a little bit more specifically in a minute, and we've corrected our index with inotropes to such a state that we're over two, we have been stable, we at this point typically will proceed to extubation. So this is where we do a breathing trial and progress our patient to getting off the ventilator. There are a few things I want to specifically mention about bleeding that are important to remember. Bleeding, sometimes our patient can come out and our bleeding is stable and not concerning, but then it picks up a little bit later on. One thing always to remember is our heparin rebound effect. Typically, heparin is reversed with protamine, but the half-life of protamine and the effect of those large heparin boluses can mean that we start to actually have a, we have a normal ACT when they come out of the OR, but later on, we can move back into a coagulopathic state, and so sometimes we may need to reverse the heparin again with some more protamine. And so again, Bleeding, just because it's stable in the first 15, 20 minutes, doesn't mean it doesn't pick back up later. That's why we do those Q15s for the first two hours. I think it's really valuable to have a few mental red flags with your bleeding. My first one is if I was stable and I have a 15-minute interval that it increases what it had been the previous, I have a little flag of saying, okay, not quite normal. Number two, 50 mils, 15 minutes, 200 mils in an hour are my two numbers that I always want to let our providers know and likely we're going to check coags. Those are my hard red flags for bleeding. If I have any serious concern for bleeding, it's important to bring it to the provider's attention because there's a few immediate things we can do. We can send coags, I can be permissive with my hypotension, so I can drop my pressure just a tiny bit, and I can increase the PEEP on the ventilator as needed per their instruction. And so again, we can also get the temp up quickly. These are all things we can do if we see signs of bleeding, but it's important to stay locked in on your chest tube outputs. That's how we manage that. That's also why it's important to manage chest tube outputs because we're always in the back of our mind thinking about tamponade. It's not something that I've seen regularly, but it can happen, and often it's more subtle. Often it's 
I had uh, I had kind of a marginal cardiac output. We gave some fluids, and the cardiac output kind of improved, but not a lot. Maybe we're on an inotrope, and it really hasn't made a big difference. But my vasopressor's going up a touch. 30 minutes later, my chest tube output dwindles a little bit more. It's down. Maybe one of my tubes is no longer draining. And the clinical picture starts to say something may not quite be right. Again, these are why we look at the whole picture, because we always want to keep in the back of our mind that tamponade could be an issue. And the concern of tamponade is it can precipitate rapidly to a state where that pericardium, if you start getting a lot of clot and blood around the heart, remember that heart's like a balloon and it does not like the space around it to be occupied. And sometimes you hit that tipping point where the heart really cannot expand. And there are situations where you rapidly and emergently have to go back to the OR or open the chest to be able to decompress the pericardium so the heart can resume function. And we may need to try and understand what is the root cause of that more significant bleeding. With tamponade, remember too, we typically, in the immediate time, it is all about fluid, 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 getting it through the heart. And so just be on the alert. If you have significant tamponade, your providers are likely going to have you run quite a bit of fluid in the short term until it can be addressed. Also, too, be on the alert that typically the way they're going to look at tamponade is either with a TEE probe or a TTE, so a transthoracic echocardiogram quickly. That's something you can be on the lookout and help your providers out with is say, hey, strong suspicion of tamponade. Do you want me to go get our old, you know, go ahead and get one of our machines for you? So things to be thinking about. Now, I know this is just a ton of different stuff and there is way more to hearts. But just to recap, we've talked about postoperatively our big concerns, right? Hypothermia, we need to correct it. Bleeding. The reverse of bleeding, which is we're bleeding, but we're not draining, tamponade. Have we checked off those boxes? We want to look at fluid status. We want to run our vitals in range, keeping that blood pressure in range. We want to correct our cardiac output. Have we done that? Do we have a stable rhythm? If we're paced, making sure that pacemaker is working appropriately and we have the right settings. We've checked all of these boxes. We're at a stable place where we're ready to move our patient to a breathing trial and off the ventilator. Every facility is different. Some do nurse-led extubations where the whole process is led by the nurse and others are some sort of combination. During this process for me, I like to do a few things ahead of time to prepare my patient for the breathing trial process. I like to, one, boost my patient in the bed and sit them upright quite a bit, like greater than 45 degrees. I like to go ahead and we have some lidocaine numbing patches on my patient. I like to put those on my patient just to start helping with pain reduction as we get them ready to move off a ventilator. The next thing I like to do, our facility uses Dilaudid for pain control. I like to give a small dose of Dilaudid just to have a little analgesia running through their system. As the patient wakes up, I want to reduce things that could create anxiety, and I want them to take good breaths. I don't want them to have significant pain. 
This is also a great time to test how they respond to their, the pain medication. What does it do to their blood pressure? What does it do to their respiratory status? This is a great time to do that while they're on the ventilator. For me, I like to wake my patient up very slowly. I turn the lights down in the room. I make the environment very calm. I like to take talk to my patient's family about if they are in the room present, just to be very calm. I like to bring my sedation down by about 25% at a time and then give it two, three, four minutes, slowly bring sedation down. And then as I do that, I'm periodically switching my patient to CPAP on the ventilator. I'm looking for a place where they have spontaneous respirations. Now, once I bring the sedation down to a place where they have spontaneous respirations, my next question is, are those breaths compatible with life? (laughs) In other words, are my tidal volumes and rate appropriate for my patient? So for me, I'm looking at before they had a 450 tidal volume and they were breathing 20 times a minute. My question here in the CPAP is, do I roughly have a steady rate? Okay, it's, it's somewhere in the 12 to 22, 24 range. I'm pretty happy with that. Are my volumes deep enough? That tends to be one of the biggest issues in the breathing trial process are the volumes. So we want to bring, maybe we need a little extra pressure support on the vent for a few minutes to help their volumes. Maybe we just need to decrease sedation a touch more to help increase those volumes. Once my patient has a good rate, good volumes, they're holding their SAT stable, I start my trial. That to me is the beginning of my 30-minute breathing trial. We're going then to proceed through that, and then we'll get an arterial blood gas to make sure that we are ready to extubate our patient. I'm a a fan, honestly, of doing my breathing trials at that optimal level of sedation where the patient hasn't woken up too much to where it's really, really uncomfortable. You know, I've seen some people where they just turn sedation off and boom, start trialing. They talk loudly to their patient. They tell them to wake up and take breaths and To me, that's just not a recipe for success, not only in the patient experience, but I think just in general, our success with breathing trials. For me, I want to ease my patient into it. And sometimes it takes an hour to do this, but that's okay. I like to be very calm with my patient. I like to talk to them slowly and quietly and tell them what's happening. And I tell them nicely, you have a breathing tube. We're having you breathe on your own. I know it feels weird. Try to take some deep breaths from me. Just very calm. The last 10 minutes of my breathing trial, I typically will bring the sedation down to almost off, but not quite. We get our blood gas. When the respiratory therapist draws our blood gas, I typically at that point turn my sedation off. Now, I always have some pain medication pulled up in a syringe ready to go. Every now and then when the sedation comes off, especially our younger people, sometimes they just wildly wake up. And sometimes you do need to give a little pain medication just to help ease them through that last five minutes. Often though, even if someone wildly wakes up, if you just reduce stimulation, usually they're going to be okay for a few minutes. It's easy in that moment to talk loudly at them, grab their arms, But I think if you can have a calm response, again, it tends to go fairly well. 
For us, when we look at our blood gases, the biggest thing for us we're looking at often is our pH and CO2. Those are some of our bigger challenges. Some of your older patients, COPD patients, et cetera, we might be a little more permissive with a few of those numbers. But again, once we have the okay, we extubate our patients. Suction is critical in this process. I like to make sure I do some good deep suctioning, have our patient cough, making sure we've got a good secure airway. After this, we put pretty much everyone on a nasal cannula. I think it's very helpful for our patients. In that immediate postoperative period, let's say you see a sign of, mm, we're just not taking good deep breaths yet. Maybe they need a little support. Of course, we have a sternotomy or like we've had some sort of esophageal uh, procedure. We might be saying, okay, do we really want to put them on a BiPAP right away here? Is that what we want to do? But maybe we say, hey, Maybe we're going to just go with a little Airvo. Airvo is something we've tried, and you'll see quite a bit postoperatively. It's nice because you can get some high liter per minute flow, like up to 60 liters. It creates a little, a little peep. Sometimes that can be really helpful for postoperative patients who are struggling initially off the ventilator. It can be challenging because they're waking up from sedation, but things also really hurt. And it can be hard because it's like you kind of want to just give some pain meds, but you don't want to depress the respiratory drive. And so you go, okay, how do I work through this? And we found at our facility that Airvo tends to be a great option just to help people for 20, 30 minutes after they come off the vent. Sometimes too, they're just mouth breathing. You can just put an oxy mask on or just put the nasal cannula in their mouth where they're breathing. So Either way, uh, the first 30 minutes I watch my patient pretty closely. I like to end the room, have some water, some ice chips. I like to have some oxycodone, some Tylenol, which is what we do for pain medicine at, the, at our facility, ready to go in the room. I found a lot of people just getting some water, a few ice chips in them, a little water, do a little swallow test real quick. It really perks people up. It makes them feel better. Their voice returns quickly. And I try to, the absolute soonest second, I can tell they are able to swallow a pill safely. I have them do our oxycodone and I have them do Tylenol. I found that drastically reduces our IV pain medication use. It also helps people. We get more consistent pain control. And to me, it helps respiratory status because one of our big post-operative concerns is atelectasis, largely from people not taking good deep breaths because of the pain of either a thoracotomy or a sternotomy. And so because of that, we want people taking deep breaths. We want people using the IS. And so to do that, we want to make sure the pain is controlled. Now, that's one of our biggest challenges, too, when we think about this is the first few hours postoperatively, I want to control pain, but I don't want to over-sedate to a point where we're not taking deep breaths, and we want to do early mobility. At our facility, my goal is to have that patient in a chair within two to three hours uh, after extubation. Unless I'm on high-level inotropic vasopressor support or hemodynamically, it's not wise, or we're on a device, my patient's in the chair. I think mentally it helps our patients recover. I think it helps with the rehab process. And I think a lot of people, what they really don't like is the feeling of the chest tubes. And I could tell you almost without fail, 
Nine out of 10 people who are complaining of significant chest pain, you stand them up, you put them in a recliner, they feel better and are happier in the chair than in the bed. To me, it is incredibly important. It also, to me, is telling because I learn a lot about our patient in terms of if they have any orthostatic hypotension, how severe is it? Often we can kind of see some signs, whether it be of maybe we need some more fluid or if we have some signs that, yeah, we just got some vasoplegia that we're going to have to deal with. Again, getting people up is really valuable. Additionally, postoperatively, a lot of times families are in the room. I try to incorporate families into the care of the patient, one, because it makes my life easier, but two, it gives them something to do because a lot of times the person who had surgery is just knocked out in the recliner. I mean, people are pretty out of it for six, eight, 10 hours after the procedure, but families want to feel like they're doing something. And so I often bring in the room ice chips, some water. I usually ask the patient, like what kind of juice they like. I bring in a cup of juice. And then usually if we don't see any clear signs that we're going to be returning to the OR, which we probably don't because we're off a ventilator now. I like to go ahead and bring in a cup some crackers, maybe a little peanut butter, it's just a little snack. There's some people that I found just it really helps their nausea if they happen to just, if they have a cracker or two, it can really help reduce nausea. I tell my patients too preemptively, like if you have any nausea, even remotely, let me know because I can treat that. I always have in the room, I pre-pull some Zofran that's sitting in the room ready to go if they need it. There's some patients too that if they have a history of postoperative nausea and vomiting, a lot of times the process of getting up to the chair can trigger some of that, especially too if they're also orthostatic and they get hypotensive, it just makes the nausea worse in those situations, I'll often pre-treat, to be honest, with Zofran, and I've found it to be very successful. In terms of the patient in the chair and that, that last part of the shift, another goal I have is to have my patient stand every three to four hours. I think it's really helpful to continue with the rehabbing process. It's work. It's hard as a nurse because you've done all this work. You get them in the chair and then just a few hours later to walk in and stand them up again. I found this to be incredibly helpful in the process, especially for your older, weaker patients, people who've already been in the hospital for a week or your people that are struggling with some vasoplegia or a little orthostatic. I like to encourage movement with these patients. I think it's just incredibly valuable. Other Post-operative considerations to have. One is hyperglycemia. So that just has to do with cortisol production during the procedure. And, and again, this is something that even non-diabetic patients, we may have trouble treating sugars. We try to keep our sugars under 150. Now, many CVICUs or different facilities will have insulin drip protocols Unless I have a sugar that's just over 250, I like to give two shots in sliding scale. I like to give an initial dose of our PRN sliding scale insulin. I like to wait a minimum of an hour to see what the sugar does. Sometimes I'll actually treat a second time before progressing to an insulin drip. Now, if the sugar was 200, I gave the appropriate sliding scale. An hour later, it's 220. I'm going on an insulin drip. But if the sugar was 200, I gave the sliding the sugar's now 171. 
I'm going to give it another shot with sliding because sometimes we're able to manage the sugar. And, and two, it's something where they come out on a high dose of norepinephrine. Of course, we have a little, you know, we might have some dextrose in there. But then we wean the drip down. So sure, we might have a sugar that's a little higher for a few hours. But then as we wean our drips down, our sugars improve. It's something to think about, but that's one of our big post-operative challenges we have is hyperglycemia associated with the procedure. Other considerations I have for hearts out of the OR are some of our specific things, and I'm just going to mention a couple of them that I think are worth mentioning. One is with a lima, so that's the um, that, that left internal mammary artery. Sometimes with those, we might see signs of some left lower lobe, kind of that left side chest pain that can be a little bit worse. We can also have delayed wound healing on a sternotomy with those, especially with our diabetic patients. Something to think about that just has to do with the way the lung is moved to access that artery. If we have a radial artery harvest, of course, they usually have done flow studies beforehand. But again, it's important to remember Confirm that you have flow over on that ulnar side. Radial artery harvest too, we have a vasospasm concern with those. So again, often they come out on nitroglycerin, but we want to make sure that we're doing something appropriate to reduce vasospasms, or if, you know, many times they're progressed to a a calcium channel blocker. Another thing to consider when you're checking an underlying rhythm is to give your patient's heart its native cardiac rhythm a chance to quote-unquote kick in this is something where i've been in the room with cardiologists before you check it and you're like "Ooh, it looks like it's asystolic but you've only given it three seconds i try to give it a little more time under the direction of the physicians and of course if you're doing this ask the providers if they really do want to do this but often i've noticed where you you give it three seconds and it looks like maybe a really slow junctional but then you give it like 15 seconds and it actually starts to pick up. And what initially looked like a junctional in the 30s is suddenly an accelerated junctional in the 60s. Or you give it another minute and you start to see P waves, you start to see some evidence of it being sinus and the patient's hemodynamically very stable. You know, I've seen this quite a few times and so I think it's worthwhile if you really check the underlying rhythm to give the heart a second. Don't just say, oh, two seconds, boom, look slow. You know, you need a chance to look at the rhythm, let the rhythm develop, assuming we're in a hemodynamically stable enough place to do so and your providers are okay with it. But again, something that I found really valuable to do. Again, we've talked about that we can have rhythm disturbances later on. We can have bleeding later on. So you're always monitoring for bleeding. I still do my chest tube outputs every hour, even if I'm an hour six or seven pretty rare that you have a sudden bleeding event that later on. But again, it's important to keep watching for those things. We typically are going to check cardiac outputs and indexes after every intervention we've done or change, whether it be in a increasing support or decreasing support. Otherwise, if things have been stable, we're going to check every at least four hours because, again, we can see issues with cardiac dysfunction worsen sometimes over time, even if things have been stable. So, again, we're really regularly checking in on those things. 
Another thing too, I like to continually assess for, for me and our, on our patients is the respiratory status. Watch your, how much oxygen you're on. Sometimes it can just creep up a little bit over time. But again, especially those patients that got a lot of blood product, we had to do a lot of fluid resuscitation. I'm always a little bit concerned for sudden circulatory overload. Do I have some pulmonary edema that maybe I didn't see before? Or for your patients that really are just taking shallow, shallow breaths, sometimes they just need that extra support or they need that encouragement, motivation to start hitting that incentive spirometer which can make a significant impact on reducing post-operative atelectasis. A final few notes I, w- I just want to mention, and, I, and they're not in any particular order, but a few things I've thought of here that I think are worth mentioning. One, don't be afraid to advocate for your patient if you think they need some sort of intervention. You know, sometimes you get a post-operative heart, they're five, six hours out, that CVP started dropping again. They're obviously not bleeding. Some patients just need a little more fluid resuscitation. You know, we don't need to go up on our inotrope. Our cardiac output dropped again below two, but our CVP trended back down. Our, our, our PA diastolic trended down. Advocate. Go to, the, go to the NP, your APPs, and say, hey, look, we need to give another fluid bolus. And sometimes, especially our, our newer APPs in critical care, sometimes can be a little more hesitant to do an intervention that they may not think is critical. But these are things to help your patient out, especially like you just stood your patient up. They're orthostatic. They had a significant drop in blood pressure. You sit them back down. They've recovered, but their CVP is low. That hemodynamic instability combined with the numbers says, hey, we're probably volume deficient. Again, go advocate for it. Don't, don't just brush it off and say, oh, okay, our blood pressure is stable. Well, our blood pressure is stable now, but they could really use some volume, and that will help them ambulate. These are things that you need to do, I think, as a really successful nurse doing hearts, is you need to think and advocate for your patient. A few other things to think about, too. There's some unique coagulopathies to think about in relation to bypass. We talked about one, about that heparin rebound effect with reversal of protamine, but we also have some things, cardiopulmonary bypass, remember that's being pulled through what's like a little fan, essentially electromagnetic fan that the blood is pulled through. And so of course we can have potential lysis there of blood cells, platelets. Another thing too with really long pump runs is we could have degradation of that von Willebrand's factor. So again, that's a concern and that can happen. And so sometimes you might see DDAVP specifically given because of that. DDAVP as well, we might use in platelet dysfunction. You had a patient that was on antiplatelet therapy. Again, that's something to consider post-operatively with our bypass patients. And of course, vasoplegia, again, is something Also as well, we can have some epinephrine-induced acidosis, some lactic acidosis. Again, that's associated with cardiopulmonary bypass. It's kind of a known fact. So if you have an acidotic patient, you check the lactate, it's a little bit elevated. Multiple times I've seen that as well on patients that are specifically on epinephrine. So something to keep in mind that's a bit unique to hearts. Also, a little bit of a, um, again, unique to the heart process is the use of methylene blue. So one of the things is we talked about vasoplegia associated with cardiopulmonary bypass. There is a specific indication of methylene blue. It's a dye 
that we can use for patients that are not responsive to initial vasopressors for vasoplegia. So in severe vasoplegia post-cardiac bypass, we sometimes will see the use of methylene blue. So if you're new into this world and you see an order for methylene blue, know that's something that you may see utilized. Of course, it turns the urine green. It's like green, blue hue. So if you also have a patient that like had bypass the day before and you see the urine, just this bizarre color, more often than not, that is the primary reason for that. Now, of course, for our sternotomy patients, we want to think about sternal precautions. So we don't want our patient pushing with their arms as they're moving around in the bed. There's lots of devices, sternal harnesses, etc., to help our patients hold on to to remember while they're moving around. But even with the nicest sternal lock systems, there's always a risk of opening the chest back up. So we have sternal precautions. I'm pretty sure those sternal precautions last, I don't know if it's six weeks or longer, I, I, but it's, it's, it's a fairly extensive period of time. So education on that is incredibly important to our patients. Also, too, when they cough, we often have them hold a pillow as they're going to cough, which can help, again, with the same issue. The other education I try to provide my patients is realistic pain expectations. I tell a lot of people that, especially our young patients, and it, it tends to be the men, they just are our, our under 50 male population, just they're just not the toughest a lot of times, and they have this expectation of no pain. And I try to be very honest with people that that's, I that no pain is probably not going to happen because if you have no pain, you're you're too sedated. And it's this balance between I want you to take really good deep breaths, but I don't want you to be so sleepy that we're not rehabbing, we're not progressing out of the ICU. And so for me, that starts with just realistic education, but also giving people hope of saying, look. It's going to be pretty painful, but the next 12 hours, if you can get through that first 12, 16 hours, it's going to get better. Work through it. By the time you get to day two, things tend to improve. I also encourage them. I will stay on the oral pain medications around the clock. And if it's really, really bad, we have the IV pain medicine. I also try to do all the little things we can to help with pain. Stay on top of the Tylenol. I, I do our lidocaine patches. I found too patient positioning can make a big difference. I try to do everything in my power, all the little things possible to set them up for success, to reduce the heavy IV pain medications. But again, we always have them if we need. But I found that just, just providing some expectations of what's going to happen can be really helpful for the patients because this is, for many people, a very big surgery and a big deal. And they also don't know what to expect. And so I think that's a huge component of this job is providing the education to the patient, but the family and walking them through what we're doing and why. Well, this was a long episode, and I know it's a bit niche. It's a bit specific. But I wanted to put this out there just because I've been doing so much training recently on this. And this is kind of the spew I give a lot of people on day one when we sit down and we walk through what on earth we're doing in hearts. I'm going to do some future episodes on more specific things. We'll talk about things like tamponade and we'll talk about 
what do we do? What are some of our most common coagulopathies, et cetera, and our inotropes? That, that's all in the future. But I hope today, if whether you're new to hearts, you've been doing them a while, but you wanted to just hear a different perspective, or you're, you're working a medical ICU, and the other day they're like, hey, you're taking a heart, and you're like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I hope that this just provides some general thought processes about the things to think about in taking care of a patient out of a CVOR. As always, thanks for listening.